Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, a weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Benjamin Smith, the lecturer in philosophy. And today we're going to look at the trial and death of Socrates. It's going to be our uh, topic of discussion today. We're going to see what kind of lessons we can learn, uh, some modern lessons from uh, a very ancient event. Um, but before we get started, I want to invite all the listeners, please hit that subscribe button. Please share this content that really helps us and everybody knows about all the, the, the algorithms and how all these things work. Um, so it really helps us if you share the content with your friends, with your family, with anybody you know, with those people at your parish who are interested. Uh, if you've been lucky enough to find those that are interested in philosophy and, and going deeper in theology, share the content with them, hit that subscribe button and hit the like button. All right, so let's get started. Um, so, Dr. Smith, we're going to talk about um, the the death and trial, or the trial and death of, of Socrates. Sure. Um, but as we get started here, uh, let's begin with a little bit of background because, I mean, we don't we don't have any writings of Socrates per se. They all come from right. Plato. Um, so, kind of set the stage uh, for sure. this uh, for this very uh, traumatic event. Yeah, it is a traumatic event actually, and it's interesting. Uh, that it's a traumatic event that really sort of sets the stage for the development of Western philosophy in general. Uh, right. you know, Socrates is really the paradigmatic figure, right, of uh, Western philosophy. <clears throat> Even if you're not a fan, per se, of Socrates' doctrines, like he just does set the example. Like when you think of a philosopher, yeah. you think of a guy with a beard, a long beard and a toga, or not a toga, <laughs> but, you know, like a Greek robe, right? You know, yeah. um, so... Um, you know, he, he really does kind of like set the stage. And a, a large reason he sets the stage is not only because of his teaching and his example, but really because of his character, I think, mm-hmm. and, and sort of the, the events of his life. It's, it's remarkable, right, that really in a lot of ways, even if he wasn't the first Western philosopher, he's considered kind of the father of Western philosophy. But, you know, his life ends in his own execution, Right. And it is in that way, it's traumatic, right? You know, in a lot of ways, yeah. he's the founder of Western philosophy and his example is inspiring, you know, the whole tradition. And yet, right, he is executed, right, <laughs> by his own city. And it's even more remarkable when you think about how famous Socrates is, right? He's probably the most, of, one of the most famous ancient figures that we have, right? Yeah. Uh, and he was executed by his own city. So it's a good question, like, well, how did that come about, right? That yeah. somebody that's so influential, so famous, um, was executed uh, by his own city. And I think, you know, in answering that question, uh, we can learn a lot about Socrates, but also about philosophy and the relationship of philosophy to um, kind of human life in general, uh, but also, um, you know, the relationship of philosophy to the truth and the re- relationship of philosophy to kind of the city, which in the ancient world would have meant yeah. like the political community. Yeah, I mean, when yeah, when you think about it, I mean, uh, in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, right? They could have mm-hmm. gone back in time and gotten anybody, <laughs> but they went back and got Socrates, right? So <laughs> that's right. Anyway, that's right. that's right. There you go. Anyways, all right, so, let's get to it. <laughs> just for, uh, like the the little bit of background will be helpful in understanding yeah. what this trial is. So first, a little bit just kind of historically situating him. Um, the, Socrates lives in the fifth century BC. So, uh, that, you know, basically, you know, 400 or more years before the birth of Christ. Mm-hmm. So, you know, definitely in the ancient world, 
he's um the if you know anything about greek history greek history is uh punctuated by two gigantic wars uh, that take place in the beginning of the fourth century. You have the Greco-Persian Wars. That's where Persia tries to take over Greece. If you watch that miserable movie, The Three Hundred, um, then uh, miserable because it's such a terrible depiction. But anyways, um, they even got the fighting wrong. But whatever. Um, the uh, that movie, The Three Hundred, right, is uh, uh, about that period. Right, the the, the yeah. resistance of the Greeks to being taken over by Persia. If somebody wants to read a really uh, a better version of that, uh, <laughs> they should read The Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. It's an excellent book. Um, so, sorry, a little plug there. Um, yeah. Then the other big war is the Peloponnesian Wars, which is really like the Greek Civil War, right? Where the Greeks okay. fight each other for about 30 years. Uh, roughly, it starts around 431 and goes to about 405, 42, something like that. Um, so... Uh, Socrates uh, lives from 470 to 399. So he's like born kind of at the tail end of the Greco-Persian Wars, but then lives through the Peloponnesian Wars. And in fact, we know, as a matter of fact, it's really interesting that he fought actually three in three separate battles um, uh, during that time, which I think is important because I think sometimes yeah. people have a idea of Socrates isn't accurate. You know, he was actually a pretty manly guy right i mean he fought yeah. in three battles he won a a, a commendation for valor uh in one of the battles his profession was a stonemason so this is a strong guy right or a bricklayer we don't know exactly but something around those times uh, around that uh he was known to be able to drink everybody under the table uh without himself ever getting drunk uh so i mean he was different he's maybe different than what people kind of think right in terms of yeah uh, uh of, the, of the philosopher right yeah but well, anyway. especially of greek philosophers too you think of, you know <laughs> soft hands that's right that's interesting um so uh, but what's what's interesting from as far as socrates story goes um is this during these this period we have the transition from an aristocracy to a democracy in mm -hmm. Athens, and that's important because eventually the Greek assembly becomes the sovereign power right within Athens. And by so it's really a sovereign assembly. You, you need to think about Athenian democracy. Of course, is quite different than our democracy. Um, there's certainly I mean, there's you know there's a huge number of slaves and of course they can't participate women can't participate uh, that sort of thing non-citizens can't participate uh, so it's actually a it's a large citizen body but it's not everybody right yeah. and what's really interesting in the assembly is the assembly is truly sovereign that is the assembly can do anything it wants right that is there's no constitutional limits yeah on what the assembly can do so it is a democracy in the sense of vote taking right but there's not a, a recognition of constitutional rights that limit the the assembly right it's really interesting right so i mean sometimes like if, if it, uh, they'll elect a general for example that's how they would choose their generals right they, they elect them right yeah and uh and they would send that general to go on mission if the general didn't succeed sometimes they'd execute him right you didn't win sorry fair you're enough guilty. You're, you're guilty of, <laughs> you're guilty of losing <laughs> you know, so, uh, so this is a, a really um, rough and ready kind of situation here. Right? Yeah. And um, you can become, and this is what's important here, you can become very powerful 
if you could get the assembly on your side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could become uh, very wealthy, very powerful. You could have your enemies, uh, you know, uh, killed, exiled, right? All kinds of things, right? If you could get the assembly on your side. So pretty quickly, people caught on that the best, you know, if you're, if you're ambitious and you have the money and the time to commit to politics, then that's a really good avenue for becoming wealthy and powerful in <laughs> Athens. And so, you know, where there's a demand, there's a, there's supply. And um, this, this interest, this ambition sort of helped to foster the growth of a, a class of people called the sophist, right? Yeah. Um, it's just interesting, right? The sophist that let the, that were the, the term comes from the, the same root that we get philosophy and that's Sophia, right? Which means wisdom, but sophist right. means wise one, right? So a, a sophist is, is a wise one. Um, and what makes him wise is that he can teach you how to be persuasive in the assembly, right? So he's kind of like your first self-help guru, right? You're, yeah, right. How to win friends and influence people kind of guy, right? That yeah, is, it has nothing to do with truth. Let's just yeah, talk that's about right. no, influencing it's about, people. It's about success, <laughs> right? I mean, they don't, they don't have, the Greeks don't quite have that word, but it is that, it, it is that about that, right? Yeah becoming wealthy and powerful through persuading the assembly, right? Um, and that that's what they can teach you to do. And, the, and they do that by really inventing rhetoric, right? So one yeah. of the things that's interesting here is that philosophy and rhetoric kind of grew up next door to each other in ancient Greece, right? Um, they invent rhetoric. They, they come up with, you know, modes of persuasion uh, that are really fascinating. And in fact, even today, their modes of persuasion kind of hold true like that is they knew that if you wanted to say get people to do things to vote a certain way right that what Mm -hmm. the best thing to do you could maybe use a little bit of logical argument Mm -hmm. but the best thing to do was to excite their passions and they taught you what they would do is they teach you how to excite the different passions depending on what you wanted to do isn't it interesting yeah I mean, well, I mean, yeah, the, everything they're doing uh, back then, they're uh, still doing today. So, or at least in right. political speech, right? <laughs> that's I mean. right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, that's that. That was kind of their approach. One of the things that was uh, important about this approach, though, was that it was only oriented towards victory, not truth, as you indicated yeah. earlier, right? Yeah, because they didn't. They used to just they would stand up and they would argue and they would get everybody on their side and then they'd argue the opposite just yeah. to get everybody on their side to kind of show their, show their yeah. prowess, you know? Sure. Like sure. Just... So yeah, that was one way of demonstrating, right. Their, uh, you know, their excellence at persuasion uh, yeah. and argument um, <clears throat> was this, they had a doctrine about this, which is interesting that, um, that reason can support both sides of a contradiction. Right. Uh, equally, that's important. Equally, reason, yeah. equally uh, uh, supports both sides of contradiction. What does that indicate? Well, that, that's that's a big deal because a contradiction. When you have a strict contradiction, you've got truth on one side and falsehood on the other, right? Yeah. Which means that if they're correct, that reason equally supports truth and falsehood, right? Right. Yeah. My coffee is both hot and cold at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. reason can support both of those. <laughs> that's right. What? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, 
they could try to they would try to show it by by arguing both sides right sometimes yeah. right um so that means of course that you know several things uh, follow from that one is that reason can never get to the the truth in itself right mm-hmm. that is can never get to what's just in itself so if you think about you know maybe the assembly arguing about whether or not it's just to go to war with Sparta and begin the Peloponnesian Wars, right? We can never really know whether it's just or unjust. We can never really get to the just, you know, like what's just in itself here. All we can do is get to appearances, right? Yeah. And so um, the truth is what, it, what seems to be to you. And the truth is what seems to be to me. Um, so truth is no longer about being, right? Strictly. It's about appearance and seems to be right, which yeah. is an early form of, of relativism. Um, sure. Protagoras, one of the um, uh, important sophists, uh, put it this way is, you know, that man is the measure of all things, of things that are, that they are, things that are not, that they are not. Right. And so man becomes the measure, right? It's a pretty relativist, yeah. you know, approach uh, to, to truth. Um, so that, that's important because in understanding Socrates, because many of Socrates' interlocutors mm-hmm. in the dialogues are actually sophists or yeah. people who have studied with the sophists, right? So, so the students of sophists who have become powerful politicians. So one of the things that's actually going on in the early dialogues here is there's really a kind of a clash between this group of rhetoricians and relativists um, and Socrates, right, uh, who who is always showing them that they don't know what they're talking about, right? Uh, He applies a very different method, right? Um, Yeah, well, and that's what, and that's what most people, if they know anything about Socrates, or they're, they've, they've had a professor or something like that, that, that knows Socrates or his philosophy, they know the Socratic method, right? So that's that's his big, that's what, you know, kind of a lot of people understand. So what's kind of the, the, the basic, uh, the the basic understanding of kind of the Socratic method. Sure. So um, the Socratic method is uh, um, it, it's unlike unlike rhetoric. Okay. Um, unlike sophistic rhetoric, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, it's um, it's ordered towards the truth, right? Mm-hmm. And and just the truth. And one of the things you notice in the Socratic method is that the person who's using it, so Socrates, right? doesn't propose definitions himself right he doesn't develop complicated doctrines he doesn't give you a speech right for the most part um occasionally he'll give a speech but it's pretty but they're they're few and far between he usually reacts to someone else right proposing a thesis right so he'll he'll ask a question so one of the the one of my favorite uh dialogues is the, the gorgias right yeah gorgias is himself a sophist and socrates you know um says uh um instead of you know when we first meets gorgias <clears throat> they want you know oh give us a display of your wisdom sorry ah, i just have a question right and that's it <laughs> you know you know if you ever heard about the the the, the uh uh the Detective Columbo from an old TV show, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. He's always asking questions, right? Well, that's Socrates, right? Socrates starts with a question. So he asks Gorgias, says, Gorgias, you're very famous and, and reputed to be wise, and many want to be your student. Can you tell me, what is it that you teach, right? So he just 
you know, what do you say you teach? And he teaches, you know, he says, oh, I teach, you know, uh, how to become a better man. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Right. How, I mean, what more would you want to know than how to become a better man? Could you tell me, uh, uh, Gorgias, what, what does it mean to be better? Right. You know, and what is it, you know, that, that kind of thing. Right. So he, he's inviting his interlocutor to form a definition. Right. Or he could say a hypothesis. <clears throat> and then what he does is he takes that definition and explores it, pokes at it, asks questions about it, right? Looks at implications. And eventually his interlocutor finds out, actually, that's not a very good definition, right? I don't, I'm not sure about that, right? Um, yeah. And he has to revise his definition. Now, this is actually a very important lesson, I think, because one of the things it should teach us, uh, the Socratic method, <clears throat> is that when you make a judgment, and we all make judgments, okay, about... Yeah. You know, uh, anything in ethics, we make judgments or politics, we make judgments about, right? We, like, this is reasonable. This is not reasonable. Um, this is, you know, you should get the vaccine, COVID va vaccine. You should not get the COVID vaccine. Both of those, right, are judgments about what should yeah. or should not be done. That Those are they're, they're judgments about the good, right? Anytime you're dealing with that. Uh, or say, <clears throat> you know, uh, questions about uh, racial justice um, and, you know, uh, pol police uh, methods and so forth like that, um, you know, that we went through recently, you know, there's judgments there about mm -hmm. what should or should not be done about what is just. Right. Right. And so if you have a strong view about what's just or about something being unjust, that presupposes what? That you know what is just. Just, right. yeah. You have a definition of justice that you're working yeah, from. That's right, to, exactly. To be the yeah. standard of justice, uh -huh. right? That's yeah, right. absolutely. It's that, that's so important. And when we're arguing with people, I would say, and you know, or if you prefer dialoguing, but really arguing, if we're dialoguing, <laughs> arguing, right? Uh, like say, you know, in an apologetic setting, yeah. a good thing to do, right, is just to make your interlocutor define his terms. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's a great thing to do, right? And if you can, um, you know, what you'll, you'll find often, and this is what Socrates finds often, is that the person literally doesn't know what they're talking about in the sense that yeah. they yeah. don't have a clear, consistent understanding of justice or the good. Yeah. And I, and I like that you use the word consistent there because if, if if any of our listeners have ever, you know, um, engaged anybody in kind of an apologetic argument, uh, I'm sure you've had the experience because it's, I think, a fairly common one where after about 30 minutes in talking in circles, you realize that either his definition, y'all are using the same term, but y'all have completely different definitions <laughs> and, right, and maybe right. his keeps changing in the middle of a conversation, <laughs> that's right. You know, that's like, right. and and again, like you said, that the that kind of Socratic questioning, right? Mm -hmm. It really gets them to to to, you know, look at a definition. Is this a definition I'm going to use? Am I applying it consistently? Right. Yeah, yeah. Am I applying it? Yeah, you know, appropriately. Like, there's mm -hmm. so many different uh, important, very important factors uh, that, that, that really, uh, I think come to the forefront in that kind of, uh, conversation. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's very effective at sort of, yeah. I think, uh, exposing inconsistencies, exposing, you know, sort of arbitrariness, um, you know, un, uh, groundless definitions, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, 
Now, it can seem sometimes that it's annoying, right? Because, you know, as Socrates says, Socrates says over and over in the different, di- or especially the early dialogues, I'm not a teacher. I don't teach because yeah. I don't know anything, right? Uh, he'll say, right? Uh, you know, this, this is ironic, you know, kind of stance. Because, you know, at the end of so many of these, like the Lakeys is all about courage, right? Then there's yeah. like, I don't know what courage is, right? It's really like, well, what was the point of this discussion? If yeah. we, we, what we end in is aporia, we're like, I don't know, right? Well, actually, Socrates, I think, points out two important, I mean, in some ways, this process, which he calls dialectic, yeah, uh, Plato calls it dialectic as well, uh, can be helpful in two ways. One is uh, is kind of like a process of elimination, right? So that when you have a set of hypotheses, say about courage or justice or something like that, well, at least this method is good at detecting error and falsehood, yeah. right? So uh, as one author puts it, um, you know, it helps clear out the intellectual rubbish, right? Yeah, it's like um, a little purgatory for your mind. <laughs> that's right, you know, like- that's right. You know, and these are questions about, you know, and Socrates will say, look, these are questions about justice and injustice, about happiness, about human excellence. Okay, he, he's very clear that that getting getting it wrong about these matters is the yeah. worst possible fate, right? Because it impacts your life, it impacts your city, it impacts your family and your friends. So, yeah. getting rid of error in this area is very helpful, right? Yeah. But one of the Socratic and Platonic um, ideas about philosophy, right, is that it's uh, medicinal. Right. That is, it's a kind of medicine for the soul. Right. Is it getting yeah. rid of uh, error? The second thing is, uh, as kind of a process of elimination, it does at least bring you closer to the truth. Because if you're right. doing carrying on a process of elimination, a falsification kind of method, right? We're looking to see if a hypothesis can stand. If you do find one that stands, you might not be able to guarantee that it's true. Right. But yeah. you can say at least it has stood. So Socrates yeah. says it's kind of in the vicinity of the truth, right? Um, so in that way, you're at least advancing towards the truth, right? So you're eliminating intellectual rubbish and you're at least getting closer, right, to the truth. Right, which completely flies in the face of of the, the, the sophists, right? Right. And, yes. and I think one of the other things that like the Socratic method does, if you've ever been on the receiving end, mm-hmm. um, I... I enjoy it, but it is, it is humbling. Sure. When somebody, especially when somebody smarter than you asks you (laughs) questions, like, what do you Uh, mean by that? Like, you're like, all right, well, this guy I know has, you know, something in mind, but at this, but it, but it, you know, at the same time, like an intellectual pursuit of truth, Mm -hmm. it, it should, it should be humbling in a way that says maybe, maybe I don't have it the best. Maybe Mm -hmm. I don't have it. Uh, maybe I could have it, you know, maybe I could attain it a little better. Maybe I could understand it, explain it a little better. That's, sure. that's, that's you know, a bit humiliating, which was part of the problem, right, in Socrates' right. day, yeah. because humility was not necessarily a characteristic <laughs> of the no, Sophists. No, <laughs> yeah. Well, it was also not even a characteristic that I think uh, was prized by Greeks in general. Greeks in general, right? yeah. You know, um, so uh, you know, one point in the... Um, the Gorgias, um, Socrates talks about the fact that to, in, to engage in this kind of method, you need to have the right kind of character, right? Yeah. That is, you need to care most about the truth more than your reputa- reputation or winning, right? Yeah. And that's, a, that, that's you know, 
some interlocutors benefit right from the Socratic method because they have the right kind of character, right? Yeah. But some come away from it very angry, okay? And this really <laughs> sort of sets up, I think, gives us the background for understanding why he's on trial. Yeah, and, let's talk about the trial. Yeah, yeah so, you know, he's fine. So with that background in mind, right, he's, he's officially charged with corrupting the youth, right? Right. Interesting charge, right? This is brought forward by two uh, young leader, political leaders in Athens, Anitas and Miletus. And they you know, uh, accuse him of corrupting the youth by not, by being an atheist and by teaching false gods, yeah. which of course, these are contradictory claims. You can't be an atheist and teach foreign teach gods. False gods. I mean, it was foreign gods, not false gods, foreign gods. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so that doesn't make any sense. And Socrates pretty quickly dispenses with all the, the, the basic accusations by just appealing to his sure. testimony, right? He can say, look, you guys have seen me in operation. Um, I don't, I don't teach, I don't have a doctrine, right, that I, I propose, right, so this doesn't make any sense, I never teach anything about the gods, because I don't know about the gods, right, so I mean, and this is a really clever defense on his part, and it's kind of unassailable, because he doesn't, yeah. in those early dialogues, teach, right, he just asks questions, right, <laughs> so uh, it's, it's hard to pin him down on heresy if he doesn't ever, you know, like, you know what I mean, uh, yeah. holding, uh, holding a thesis, or proposing a thesis. Um, but, you know, he exposes pretty quickly that this, this trial is not about corrupting the youth. It's not <laughs> yeah. about any of these particular charges. It's really about something else altogether. And <clears throat> it ties into that, that point about uh, humility and being humiliated. Yeah. So he says, now, I, I will say this, in the trial, it's pretty clear that Socrates doesn't care too much about what happens to him he right? knows what's gonna happen yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. yeah. i think he kind of knows what's gonna happen and so i think he's kind of like resigned to 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 his fate uh but he's like i'm gonna make a good show of it right and yeah. so he um <laughs> you know he says the real reason that i'm being put on trial is because i possess a certain kind of wisdom a human <laughs> wisdom right? which is really interesting because throughout the whole of his career before this he says i'm not wise right now he yet. says, oh, no, you know, actually, it's a kind of human wisdom I, I possess. And of course, you know, this is one of the places in the in the in the apology. That's the actual text we have uh, yeah. about the trial, you know, where the jury starts to yell and shout. And then he says, no, 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 gentlemen, don't know, interrupt me. Don't interrupt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my, it's my turn. And so he says, um, he says, uh, now, how do I know this? Right. That I, I have a certain kind of human wisdom. Well, my good friend, Carafon went to the uh, oracle at Delphi and asked the god of the temple who is uh, whether or not Socrates, whether or not anyone is wiser than Socrates. And the god of the temple, as it would have been Apollo, through the oracle of Delphi said, no one is wiser than Socrates. So not <laughs> only is he being actually persecuted because he has a kind of human wisdom, it's verified by a god, right? right. <laughs> you know? so apparently he doesn't believe in. So that's... <laughs> that's right. The truth. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, of course, again, this sounds outrageously arrogant to the jury. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> and I think it's meant to, to be honest. But, but he goes through, uh, but he explains it in this way. And this helps explain, I think, a lot of his Socratic method. He says that um, he didn't believe this report. 
right? Yeah. Like he said, this can't be true. The God must be mistaken, right? Or there's some kind of riddle here. And often the Oracle of Delphi did speak in riddles. So it wasn't impious to think that there's a something ironic or, or, or sure. whatever here. And so he says, okay, well, I'm going to demonstrate that the God is wrong by going to those in the city who are most reputed to be wise. And I will ask them questions about wisdom and they will demonstrate their wisdom. And then I'll show that someone is wiser than Socrates, right? Let's see how that works. Supposed to work, right? Yeah. So he goes into the city and he finds somebody who's reputed to be wise and begins to question him. And he finds out that this man does is not wise. Actually, he's ignorant about what constitutes human excellence. Um, and not only is he ignorant of it, but he won't give up the belief that he's wise about it. Right. Yeah. So he's he, the, he's in the worst position. Right. He's ignorant and he thinks he knows. Yeah. Right. Which is the worst position, because then he's going to act on his hit what he thinks he knows um, about justice or happiness. But it's going to be misguided. Does, does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Ignorance and arrogance. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Tied together. It's a horrible right. cocktail. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so, uh, of course, the man goes away angry. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and those that were listening go away. Many of them go away angry. And Socrates says, well, you know, um, I don't know what to do about the anger, but this is mysterious. It seems that I am wiser than this man, at least in this, that I know that I am not wise. Uh, uh, that, yeah, is, yeah. that I don't have the techne or the knowledge of the best life or happiness, but that I should be following. I should be pursuing the question, Right but that my wisdom is a kind of negative wisdom in that sense. Isn't that interesting? Right. Yeah. Um, which, which all the others didn't show that they, that they had at least enough knowledge to say, here are the things that I don't know. That's right. right? Exactly. Yeah. So he goes on with this mission. Right. And, and this is, you know, basically he's, you know, he, you know, like the, was it like the blues brothers or whatever? Like he's on a mission from, from Apollo, right? <laughs> yeah. He's on a mission from God, right. A uh, God um, the, he's on this mission, right. To prove, that uh, someone's wiser than him, but through his career, he finds actually that no, right? Like that all of his interlocutors lack wisdom, right? And mm -hmm. so that he, the sense in which he's the wisest is that he at least acknowledges his lack of wisdom, right? So he is actually kind of, I think, trying to teach in an indirect way yeah, uh, a kind of intellectual humility, yeah right. but um, yeah it's i mean it's it's i don't want to say it's like a prerequisite but i mean it's like this you know it's just kind of the 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 disposition right mm -hmm. that i think every philosopher needs to begin with right yeah right sure, that, sure. i mean i think that's yeah maybe that's a good way to put it i don't know i know um, i like that jason that's good i think uh, every philosopher every student of theology you know um you know if you're really going to learn anything right you really need to start with a position of uh, intellectual humility a position which you you say oh maybe i know a little about this or that but i don't yeah. you know I, I have a lot to learn right uh and also you know importantly that i could be mistaken right uh, yeah. about things right and uh you know you need to know your limitations i think one of the things you learn over the course of a career over the course of a life especially if you're engaged in study and learning um you know is the the, the further you go for many of us anyways, 
the more likely you are to start saying, well, that's probably true. <laughs> right? you know? Because you realize, you know, how complicated things can be. That doesn't mean that there aren't any absolutes, of course. I think that there are. But yeah, we the have same plenty time, of podcasts on those. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, I think you just from a, you know, in terms of your own learning, um, your own study, it's good to, um, to have that sort of strain of humility and revisability. Um, yeah. In the later in the dialogue, uh, this is a, a Socrates poses the question, um, you know, well, what if they were to uh, let him off if he'd stopped doing philosophy, right? Yeah. Uh, or, or shouldn't he? Or shouldn't he feel ashamed about being brought uh, to this uh, impasse in his life? And he says, you know, oh, uh, you know, far from it, right? Uh, I'm committed to this uh, form of life. I'm not at the least ashamed of it. In fact. This life is valuable because it is the greatest service to the city. So again, yeah, Socrates is again like pushing right on um, his accusers. He's saying, far from corrupting the youth, right? Yeah. I am actually benefiting the city more than any other citizen, right? Which, and 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 you got to remember, he's talking to um, the sovereign assembly, or he's talking That's to right. the people who think that they that they are the ones that are really at the service that's right yes, and socrates yeah, yeah. just just put himself a little bit up there. <laughs> that's right that's right so i'm gonna i uh, know this is bad podcasting but i'm gonna do it anyways uh <laughs> I, I need to read a little pa- passage here from um the apology uh yeah. where he you know um insists right that and this is interesting that his mission and so more broadly philosophy is the most beneficial thing to the city Right. Yeah. Um, so by city, you want to think of that almost as kind of as a metaphor for political life, but take political life in a broad sense. Right. Certainly yeah. including laws and government, but also just sort of our culture, our ethos, how we interact with each other, uh, sure. that sort of thing. Right. OK. So he says, gentlemen of the jury, I am grateful and I am your friend, but I will obey the God rather than you. As long as I draw breath and I'm able, I shall not cease to practice philosophy to exhort you. And in my usual way to point out to any one of you whom I happen to meet. Good, sir. You are an Athenian, a citizen of the greatest city with the greatest reputation for both wisdom and power. Are you not ashamed of your eagerness to possess as much wealth, reputation and honors as possible? While you do not care nor give thought to wisdom or truth or the best possible state of your soul. Then if one of you disputes this and says he does care, I shall not let him go at once or leave him. But I shall question him, examine him, and test him. And if I do not think he has attained the goodness that he says he has, I shall reproach him because he attaches little importance to the most important things and greater importance to inferior things. I shall treat in this way anyone I happen to meet, young and old, citizen and stranger, and more so the citizens, because you are more kindred to me. Be sure of this. Be sure that this is what the God orders me to do. And I think there is no greater blessing for the city than my service to the God. For I go around doing nothing but persuading both young and old among you not to care for your body or wealth in preference to or as strongly as the best possible state of your soul. As I say to you, wealth does not bring about excellence, but excellence brings about wealth and all other public, private and private blessings for men. Um, so yeah. really, I mean, it's a, I think a nice passage, right. Where you get sort of, I mean, that, that's about as, uh, one of the longest speeches that Socrates gives, uh, where you get sort of like, okay, this is what he's really up to. It's yeah. interesting, right. Then he's saying that 
criticizing the ignorance, avarice, greed, and ambition, exposing, I guess I should say, right, um, of the leading elements in society is what's most beneficial, right? That it's a blessing for the city. And that by doing this, he has actually served the city well. Towards the end, after he's sent, after he's found guilty, of course, uh, there's a sentencing phase and they ask him what sentence he thinks he deserves. And he says, well, if you're going to talk about what I deserve, I will, uh, I think I should receive a pension. (laughs) 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 Maybe a little place to live, you know, or something like that, you know? At the, uh, of course, he knows he's going to die. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, but you know, um, that's an interesting claim, right, about it being a blessing to the city. Yeah. Uh, because certainly that's not what his peers thought, right? And I think it does raise uh, an interesting question about the relationship of philosophy and politics or political community, maybe philosophy and power, Um that there is something about the pursuit, you think about the pursuit of wisdom, asking questions, making arguments, um, that, you know, I was raised just long enough ago that where there was this idea that still, that, the, that all speech should be free, arguments should, you know, you should be able to say whatever you want, right? Yeah. Uh, as long as you don't sort of physically attack someone, right? Uh, sure. You should be able to put out whatever kind of arguments you want. You know, somebody like John Stuart Mill, you know, uh, argued vociferously, you know, on the side of, you know, that free speech is the best is the best thing for us, right? Because it allows the truth, right, to emerge, right, from uh, argument. You know, the old classic liberal um, uh, limit on that was the idea that you know you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? Sure. That kind of thing. But other than that, right, you should be free to argue whatever you want, right? Yeah. Um, I remember when I first you know got into academics, you know, there was academic freedom, right? It was a high ideal, right? That is, you know, professors should be able to to think and say what they want um, because that serves the interest of truth. See, see that, right? And yeah. uh, you know, today we don't have that. Uh, in the same way, right? You know, we have power prevents us from saying things that we might otherwise say, right? Um, And that's that's interesting to think about. So our political existence, our existence in this culture, in this time and place is such that if you were to truly follow philosophy, right? You would say things that would probably ruin your career. And ruin your opportunities to uh, to to have be prosperous, right? Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that interesting? So, I mean, uh, that there maybe is some sort of tension here <clears throat> between political life, living together, living under a government, living in a place of laws. Uh, I don't say it's necessary, but it does see, just seem to be true, right? Um, <clears throat> that there's a tension between the full you know, sort of zealous pursuit of truth yeah, and political life. What do you think about that, Jason? Yeah, I think that's spot on. Um, the subjugation of everything to politics is, is going to lead to our destruction, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I, I, think, I think a good example of this is um, uh, just this past week, um, I think it was on the, the 8th or something like that, there was a professor in Portland 
Peter uh, Bohesen or something. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, At Portland State University, he resigned. He was a a philosophy professor there, Mm -hmm. Um, but he he resigned because he said, you know, students are not being taught to think. They're being trained to mimic moral ide- ideologies. Right, right. And yeah, I, I, lo- yeah. I just, I, I, I like that. Um, well, I mean, not, I don't like that, but I like what, how sure. he characterized right. it because, yeah. again, what, you know, and, and this goes also to, you know, education. Um, mm-hmm. And especially, you know, the, the, the secular person thinks, is, thinks of education as forming the best possible citizens for the society, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but our education seems to be, simply training people to mimic moral ideologies right. as, a, as opposed to sure. thinking. So, I mean, yeah, thinking Socrates, critically, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're, you know, whereas Socrates would say, you know, we want, we want people to be able to think, to process, to, mm. to be able to enter into, uh, uh, you know, uh, different positions right, and right, find right. value or find uh, defect, you know, sure, um, sure. but, but the, the idea that, um, you know, I think again, we're like you said, we're we're it's a it's a scary situation where all of us, I think, have had the thought, I I want to say this in the public square, but I know that if I say that, <laughs> right, uh, I will be put on trial like Socrates, right? Mm. I may not be put to death physically, but you know, sure. my like some people, you know, their entire life is gets canceled mm. or whatever for simply saying something contrary or asking a question. Sure, um, yeah, that's the thing. Is you know, it, it ought to at least be the case. You can ask the questions, you know, and you look at the things that he he marks out here. Right. Uh, he talks about the body, about uh, wealth, right. About power. Yeah. So one of the things I think that he's kind of pulling back on here is that you're, this is kind of an Augustinian point, right? Where is your love? Right. Yeah. If your love is centered on wisdom and truth, right. Then you're going to be kind of pursuing that Socratic path. Right. Um, but if your love is going to be set or your heart is set on your body, pleasure, wealth, prestige, right. Then the pursuit of wisdom is always going to have to be secondary. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah. uh, In terms of, um, and, 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 and worth sacrificing if it gets in the way. Right. And that's what happens really with Socrates is he gets in the way. Right. Yeah. He gets in the way of normal life because he, he, he makes these arguments that show that these sort of commonly accepted things are not actually that valuable. Right. Uh, and that and that, you know, the, that those who pursue them are actually ignorant. Right. And people who don't like that. Right. Um, yeah. But it shows you, right, there's a really a clash of love. Right. Of of objectives there. <clears throat> that underlies uh, that tension. And I think it's a tension probably, you know, throughout human history. Um, but at the same time, uh, as maybe, you know, felt in his time in a special way and felt in our time uh, in a particular <laughs> way. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I mean, like, like you said, there's this tension between philosophy and politics. It's when you, when you start to, or at least today, when you start to, um, manipulate language right it even becomes difficult or manipulate language in the way that we have where we're, we're you know manipulating the signs and trying to manipulate the realities like it's just <laughs> sure it's yeah it's just it's a bad path forward and it leads to actually you know a very difficult uh way to to talk to dialogue about these things in any serious manner 
um, that's kind of, you know, um, without emotion, right? Yeah, We're going to, sure. that, that we both have the, you know, and again, this goes back to kind of what you were saying about the, the, the power and kind of even what the, the sovereign assembly, how they saw mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. And the sophists, right? The, the goal is winning. That's right, yeah. Right, the yeah. goal is power. Uh, whereas you know, yeah. uh-huh. right? Whereas, whereas you know, the 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 Christian should be you know, well, the goal is truth. The goal is God. The goal is mm. holiness. Right? Mm. Um, to have the these two you know clash of of titans, if you want, yeah. Um, you know, it's it 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 creates a a, a disturbing society. Yeah. Um, you know, so and I think you know, in know. a lot of ways, that that is where we're. That's where we. That's that is kind of like part of the human condition, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Is that, you know, you're you're either going to be, a, I mean, this is one of the things that's interesting about the Socratic and Platonic tradition is there is a kind of um, dramatic way in which they paint the human condition, right? Which yeah. is this kind of real opposition, right? There's a, you know, it kind of makes you in a different sort of setting, think of the city of God and the city of man, you know, there is the the lover of wisdom and everybody else, Right. And uh, if you're everybody else, you know, maybe you won't be pure, like maybe you won't be, you know, wretchedly evil, uh, but maybe you will be. But the point being is you're not going to be ruled by the love of truth. Right. Right. Um, You're not going to be ruled by the love of reality, um, the love of trying to know what is just in itself. Right. And so you fall back on this, this, this opposite view. I think that's part of the, that, that, that paints it a little bit of a dark, kind of picture or at least a, sure. a picture of conflict and and a kind of spiritual war and uh i think socrates was willing to see it in that way two two quick things here as we just wrap up that i think illustrate this conflict that's really the socratic the, the trial and death of socrates is revealing right is there yeah. is this conflict between these is two statements by um by, by socrates one is that philosophy is preparation for death uh, and more than a few undergraduate students may have thought that's absolutely true as they're taking an introduction to philosophy class. But um, what he means there is detachment, right? Yeah. As you learn to be detached from these things that other people consider to be the most important, right? Yeah, power, wealth, all those you know, things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other is, you know, um, is is really his death scene, right? It's a really moving uh, um, scene. It's uh, the... Um, uh, the it's in the credo and mm-hmm. there we have you know socrates has an opportunity he's 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 sentenced to death but they give him the the nicest death penalty that athens had which was to drink a poison that basically just puts you to sleep um mm-hmm. uh, again among execution methods in athens that was the best right <laughs> and so and actually they let him have his friends with him you know uh so they're, they're interested in killing him but they're not it's interesting. They kind of give him the nicest situation in which to die, right? Uh, yeah, almost as if they know what they're doing is, is wrong. Yeah, kind of, yeah <laughs> it's wrong. So they have this famous dialogue here right before he's supposed to die, right? I mean, it's like an hour before he's supposed to die, right? Yeah. And they're arguing about the existence of the soul and the immortality of the soul. <laughs> and Socrates goes through and disproves all of the arguments of the immortality of the soul, right? <laughs> and, uh, and of course, his friends are like frustrated because they want to believe their friend is going to continue to like his soul is going to carry on right and uh one of them starts weeping and he reprimands them and and socrates is perfectly calm through the whole thing he certainly does say you know i think it's best to believe that the soul continues uh and to live yeah. as, if it, as if it does but then he you know he eventually drinks the poison and he's starting to die 
And the last one of the, I think, the, if not the last statement, close to the last statement he makes is he reminds one of his friends to make a sacrifice to the god Askepolis. And the god Askepolis, interestingly, is the god of healing. Yeah. And it, it's it's like he's he's saying we should make a, a sacrifice of gratitude to the god of healing. But he's, he's dying. dying. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, this is one of those last little ironic, weird things that Socrates leaves us with. We don't know for sure what he meant by that, but there is a pretty broad consensus among scholars that what he meant by that was that death is a kind of healing, right? Which is an interesting and kind of provocative thought there. Obviously, for the most part, we want to avoid death. We don't think about death in that way. Sure. But I think, you know, if you see the world as, as involved in this conflict, yeah. right, in which the pursuit of truth and wisdom can lead to your death, right? Because there's this opposing force, right? Of the pursuit of wealth and prestige and power. Then really, you know, uh, to use an old Catholic phrase, you know, it's a veil of tears, right? And, yeah. and, and to be freed from it is not the worst thing, right? Uh, yeah. uh, by far. Uh, so it's interesting, uh, I think, picture of both the human condition of the pursuit of wisdom uh, that Socrates' trial and death uh, gives to us. Yeah, I mean, I think it gives us great lessons for that are, again, you're talking, you know, what is that, 20, 2,400 years ago, yeah, uh, 2,500 years ago, but yeah. I mean, he was the first dude that gets canceled and put to death for <laughs> what he right. said, you know, for just asking questions, like, mm -hmm. what he went through is still very important for us today, and we can draw on, I think, many of these same great uh, lessons uh, from Socrates. Sure. Um, if we take the time to to look into it, to read it, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, really try to to I think you know, and we I think in today's society we have to we have to make that concerted effort to say I'm going to put truth first. I'm going to put that's right. that's right. these higher that's things yeah. before mm -hmm. wealth, prestige, and power, and all these other things. Yeah. Um, think, you know, yeah. so you know, Socrates I think gives us you know that that disposition uh, that mm. we should that we should have all right dr smith i think you've given our listeners a lot to uh, uh a lot to think about um we'll put a we'll put a note in the 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 links down below to uh, uh you can uh read uh the the apology of socrates mm -hmm. uh which has his trial and and all of these wonderful things in there um in the meantime check out all of our content over at catholicstudiesacademy.com We'll see you next time. God bless.